0: Behind the Knife, the Surgery Podcast, where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgeoff, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jason Bingham. And we are absolutely thrilled to have surgeon Dr. David Knott on the show. So Dr. Knott is a consultant surgeon in London, uh, where he specializes in vascular trauma and minimally invasive surgery. And for the past 23 years, David has taken unpaid leave each year to work for the aid agencies uh, Doctors Without Borders, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and Syria Relief. And he has provided surgical treatment uh, to victims of really countless uh, areas of conflict and catastrophe, uh, including, and this is just a partial list, Bosnia, Afghanistan, Liberia, Darfur, Haiti, Pakistan, Libya, Syria, Gaza, Nepal. And as well as treating victims of conflict and catastrophe and also raising uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars for charitable causes, Dr. Nott teaches advanced surgical skills to local medics and surgeons when he is abroad. And um, in London, he teaches the Definitive Skills Trauma course, uh, in addition to the surgical training for the austere Environment course, uh, which are run at the Royal College of Surgeons. And in 2015, Dr. Knott also established the David Knott Foundation with his wife, Ellie. And the foundation supports surgeons to develop their operating skills for war zones and austere environments. And most recently, at least uh, in the United States here, Dr. Knott came out with a book called The War Doctor, Surgery on the Front Lines. And War Doctor is an international bestseller and became available in the United States a month ago. Uh, The book is absolutely breathtaking. I literally could not put it down. Um, The the sheer volume of human suffering and danger uh, that Dr. Knott encounters is is staggering. It's almost incomprehensible, honestly. Uh, But Dr. Knott has a very humble and unflinching approach uh, to surgery and education. And he did this in really the world's most dangerous conflict zones. And to do that's absolutely extraordinary. So Dr. Nott, it is an honor to have you on Behind the Knife today. Thank you for taking uh, time out of your very busy schedule to join us. It's a
1: pleasure, Patrick. Uh,
0: so can we can you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself briefly, where you grew up, where you did your surgical training and and, and where you're practicing now and what your surgical practice consists of?
1: Sure well I was born in a very small village uh, in South Wales um, and my mother and father actually were he was a doctor and my mother was a nurse but at that time they had no money so I was brought up by my grandparents in this very small village till I was about five and then picked up by my parents uh, from that age on and had a bit of a lonely childhood really um, and never really sort of fitted in I would have said really I I think that I missed my grandparents I missed my family in Wales and I spent my Welsh was my first language and moving into England I didn't speak any English for a while and then um so it was a bit of a sort of funny lonely childhood um and I used to make model aeroplanes and and things like that and and then I um as time went on I really wanted to be a pilot and my dad said to me oh no 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 you're going to be a surgeon or a doctor and I said no no I'm going to be a pilot no 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 and you know what what um fathers are like very pressurized and so I, I sat my exams to get into university and did very badly really badly and um so I I came home and said well dad I've I've failed you know uh, and and but the funny thing was, is that when I did get home, I had a few of my school chums phone me, up, almost laughing at me, saying, well, you know, David, you're a failure. And it's 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 those sort of things that right at the very beginning of your life really have a significant effect on you. And then I thought, well, I'm, I don't want to be a failure. I really don't want to be a failure. So I went back to school and um, studied very hard and resat those exams again and finally got into university and went to St. Andrews uh, and then Manchester University and uh, qualified um, as a doctoress several years later.
0: Excellent. And, and you're currently in London, correct? And you, you are uh, general surgery, vascular surgery, and minimally invasive surgery. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. And often people say to me, you know, uh, why on earth did you keep going why did you do general surgery and then um super specialize in vascular surgery and then also do minimally invasive uh, upper gi surgery and the reason why i've done that really is to keep all the plates spinning because not only not only do i do those three uh, different sorts of specialties i do trauma as well and i also do sarcoma work and the sarcoma work i do i do Uh, fairly extensive groin uh, reconstructions with plastic surgeons and also uh, I do lots of um, removing sarcomas and and with the plastic surgeons doing flaps and things. So one of the reasons for uh, having this massive interest in surgery was that I, I felt that when I first went on my very first mission Many many years ago, that all the things I ever learned um, was going to be really really useful to me. Because I think sometimes we all think that uh, going through surgery, that we're all fairly, you know, fairly specialised at the end of the day. And when you do go to war zones or when you do go and work in difficult environments, uh, you really are on your own, and you really need to have all the different specialties at your fingertips, and not only to have them as Regards being able to know how to use them, but use them in the environment that you're in. So you may not have much blood, you so a different operation is done rather than doing the operation that you do in the states or the UK when you have loads of blood. You'd do something different, and 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 when you're, you know, if if you get a patient that comes in with bone showing, you know, it's it's if you have the skills to. Be able to rotate flaps and things like that to cover the bone immediately. It's a fantastic thing to be able to do, and also, you know, in all these things in war zones and and, and difficult environments and and, the, uh, and catastrophes around the world, uh, which are not man-made, um, there's always this civilian population that that carry on, and you know, they require to have their appendices removed. They require to have cesarean sections, and so it's really having this really huge. Uh, area of surgery that you can dip into and dip out of and so i still maintain uh, general surgery i still do upper gi i still do my vascular i still do my trauma i still do my sarcoma and, and plastic work um, and really really still enjoy
0: it that's a an amazingly diverse practice and it, and it shows in 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 your book uh how you are able to apply this so uh, again, I mentioned in in the introduction that you have in fact provided surgical care in really countless disaster zones, and this list is essentially a catalog of of war, conflict, and natural disaster over the past few decades. It's, it's if you look back, and it's like if there was a a major conflict, you were there. And I think we, we owe it to you. I want to re- I, I mentioned a few of the countries. I'm going to read the complete list of countries. Um, I at least I believe this is complete about where you've been um, uh, for our listeners. So that's Bosnia. Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ivory Coast, Chad, Darfur, Yemen, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Haiti, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Syria, the Central African Republic, uh, Gaza, and Nepal. Uh, Again, a kind of who's who of of conflict and and strife over the past few decades. Um, And can you Take a few of those places, Doctor Nan, and tell us what brought you there, and what type of surgical care were you were you providing there?
1: Well, probably the best thing to really start off with is is the re, is one of the reasons why I sort of wanted to start doing this sort of work. And it's very you know people, people have sort of raised eyebrows when I when I tell them this. But my dad, when I was a surgical resident, uh, took me to uh, see a film called The Killing Fields. And uh, it's about Cambodia. It's about the Viet Cong. It's about, uh, you know, devastation that was happening in those times, which is probably about 35 years ago or something like that now. And basically, what it is, it's, about, it's a war story. Uh, it's also about journalism. It's also about uh, people caring for each other and people standing up for each other. And it's also uh, in part of it. There was a doctor who was operating on his own with masses of casualties outside and at the end of the film though these two journalists Sidney shanberg and dith pram got together uh, in this hospital which has had a, a sign above it called the international committee of the red cross hospital in cambodia and that had such a dramatic effect on me that i was almost stunned sitting there in the quiet of the of the um the cinema in the, in the dark of the cinema and uh my dad took me back to my hospital, which is Manchester Royal Infirmary at the time, and I I couldn't sleep. So I went there the following day and uh, watched the film again. And it had such an impact on me that that was the real start of me wanting to go and work abroad. So I had to wait, of course, until I was uh, finished off my surgical training uh, as a resident. And I was trained in, in general surgery um, and very uh had a lot of training in hepatology and pelvic surgery and I did vascular surgery as well and I felt at that time um I was sort of ready to go so to speak really and I got my job uh, many years ago now um my first job and as the I started off in uh, I think at the end of um start of October uh, 1992 and in uh, November 1992 the 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 Bosnian war was fluff, was really Um, firing away on our television screens. And I was just watching this every night. And then I watched a man who was searching for his uh, daughter in the rubble who couldn't find his daughter. And uh, he did eventually find his daughter, and she was really severely injured. And he took her to a hospital, and there was no doctors there to save his daughter's life. And I do not know quite what happened to me. But again, it was one of those going to bed at night time and having a bit of a sleepless night and then suddenly waking up in the morning and it was just like this big light bulb went off in my head and I thought right well I'm going to be that man that goes and you know goes to that hospital and and sits there uh, and looks after people if they come in and um I did and it's, it's when I it's a very bizarre story at the time there but I started my job in October I'd been there for a month and I was watching this going through November so I'd been there for about 10 weeks and it was a really good job that I, I somehow managed to get. Um, I don't quite know how I managed to get it, but, but I said to the professor, I said, you know, I'm really sorry about this, but I've just been watching this programme on the television and I need to go off to Sarajevo. It's uh, the Bosnian crisis. And he said, no, don't be silly. You've just started this job. Uh, I said, I know, I know, but I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go. He said, well, David, you can't go. I said, well, I, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to go. And so there was this tussle. I remember sitting in his big office with his mahogany chair and and all the books around him. And I just felt I wanted to run. I wanted to run to Bosnia. And um, th- he said, well, you can't go. And so I went to see the manager who said, you can't go. And then we had an Australian uh, fellow who was working with us who was a very experienced fellow. And I said to him, you know, uh, Eric, If I give you two thousand pounds, which is probably about three thousand dollars, will you cover me for a few weeks? (laughs) And and of course, he said he would. And so I gave him my money, from my the only money I had in my account, (laughs) and got on the next plane to Sarajevo. And I knew I was probably could could have been making clinical suicide, but that's how it all started. And when I did get to Sarajevo um it was a very strange experience because i remember getting on this Aleutian airplane and landing uh into sarajevo and the um the plane stopping it may, it had to make a nosedive into the airport a very exhilarating ride really and uh dived into the airport and we were all told to get off as quickly as possible because there were snipers in the hills and things like that and mount Igman, was overlooking um, Sarajevo, and that was the place where the Serbians were firing in heavy rounds of artillery and gunfire onto the city. And um, so the plane had to do a very quick turnaround and with the the four engines then uh, zoomed off. But then I was picked up by an MSF armoured vehicle and taken to a hospital called the State Hospital, uh, which was in the city centre. And um, it was called the Swiss Cheese Hospital at the time because... there were so many holes in it and it was constantly being hit all the time and um and then I spent well I should have been there for two and a bit weeks but in fact ended up being there for almost three months and um I had I it it just did everything for me it 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 was a boy's own adventure but the best adventure you could ever possibly imagine and I think you know, it had danger involved. It was the possibility of being killed. It was the possibility of, you know, of making camaraderie with people that you'd never see again, and helping people, and doing what you'd been sort of trained to do. Although I'd never been, I'd never done any trauma surgery before. Uh, I was just, um, I was a general vascular and an abdominal surgeon really, uh, and really had to make it up as I was going along. Um, and that's not the way how to how to do your trauma surgery in a war zone, as I you know learned at a later and a later time that you that's why I teach people now. But at that time, uh, you know, there was nobody else there. And it was a, a wonderful, wonderful start to a surgical humanitarian career, as well as coming home and do my own job. An
0: absolute uh, trial by fire on the on the trauma surgery front. Um, in, in the preface of your book, you talk a little bit about why you went and You just obviously shared a little bit of story about this initial trip to, to Bosnia. And in the preface, you state, uh, and I quote, I have traveled the world in search of trouble. It is a kind of addiction, a pull I find hard to resist. It stems partly from the desire to use my knowledge as a surgeon to help people who are experiencing the worst that humanity can throw at them. And partly from the thrill of just being in those terrible places, of living in a liminal zone where most people have neither been nor want to go. And, and I want to follow that up. In Bosnia, you tell a story about taking a trip from one hospital to another uh, to perform reconstructive surgery on a patient who, who needed it. And that for whatever reason, that time around, you, you had not taken an armored vehicle Uh, And that during that trip, um, your driver was was shot and and the porter who was was with you was was killed. But and you talk about that in in kind of shocking terms, but also in some degree of euphoria as well in terms of having lived through that and to be able to be there and continue providing the surgical care that that, you know, you talk about throughout the book. Can you share a little bit more about that, the, 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 the why and that and that? And that excitement,
1: yeah, of course. I mean, after you know being there for a couple of months, um, you're surrounded by really gunfire every night. The hospital gets hit every now and again, and uh, you start to feel, you know, this is such a an abnormal environment to find yourself in. Uh, I used to spend my evenings just sort of looking out at the crack of the of the floor um, and watching this sort of um, tracer fire firing across Sarajevo every night. And the thud, thud, thud of the um, of the boom of the uh, of artillery shells landing, you know, all in the city. And after a while, you um, get attuned to it and you become sort of slightly you feel that you're immortal and you really feel that you're immortal. you. you I was a young man at the time. I, I was in my early thirties, and you know, I, I felt that I was uh, I, I, I was immortal. And not only did I feel immortal, I used to I'd never felt as well as I did on that mission ever again. I it must have been the endorphins. It must have been the sheer thrill and uh, of being in somewhere whereby you know journalists would come past. People, they would ask questions and they would see what was going on and they were sort of. It, it was like I was on a different plane, and it was it was a, a euphoric experience. And so I got to a stage whereby you know I I didn't wear my you know, MSF gave me a a, a a body armor and helmet, and, and I I thought I don't need this, and um, so I, I I discarded it, which was a big mistake because. You know, and that's not only then you start to break the rules, you start to break. And there are certain rules that if you work for an NGO, you just have to do exactly what they say, because the rules are there for a particular reason. They're there to save your life. They're there to make sure that you don't do anything stupid. And, you know, if doing stupid, you could you could put other people's lives in danger. But at the time you know, I was young, I was I was feeling euphoric and I was feeling that I'd been bitten by this war drug. Uh, which many journalists uh, have also had the same you know drug feeling and um, there was a patient who needed to be transferred from the state hospital up the Kosovo because he'd had lots of uh, burn injuries he'd had lots of uh, needed a lot of intensive plastic surgery we didn't have that amount of intensive care management for him at the state so um, he was my patient and I you know I should have just said to the um, the driver um that uh you know here's the patient here's in the back of the ambulance and I and I will uh, you know do what I need to do and stay in the hospital which was my job but I thought well no let's let's go for a trip and um so the hosp- the the ambulance had a big red cross on the top and on the bonnet and uh the porter uh, was sitting in front uh, the patient was sitting at the back with me he was lying on a stretcher it was a very it was like it's like a one of those long cars really that an estate type car and then the um the driver was was um, the, or the ambulance driver was driving and we had to skirt across a part of the city called sniper sniper alley uh, where snipers were regularly shooting at people walking across the street and nobody really went there and If you do go there, it was normally that you had sort of almost like a convoy. Uh, to try and protect whoever was going and very very rarely did anybody go up sniper alley um but um w- it was a shortcut to the hospital up to the Kosovo and, and we went that way and as immediately as driving into um out of the hospital probably at 500 meters or so we the car came under a bevy of uh, of bullets uh, it broke the windscreen um all I could hear was uh like somebody throwing lots of um, stones at the car but but huge stones and the the windscreen cracked and the the driver got shot in the shoulder the porter who was in front of me just in front of me uh, had bullets to his um, chest and um and the dr- and the driver thank god and i i thought you know I'm, i didn't know whether i was hit or not hit or anything like that i had some blood on my face and i could taste some blood and I thought well I you know it was all happened in a, in almost a picosecond and the driver then uh, put the car back into reverse and we just reversed straight back into the into the hospital and um so no it was uh it was a uh, getting out of the car as well and then seeing the the driver uh with a bullet wound to his shoulder uh, I just dragged him out I looked at the porter uh, and dragged him out but he was dead and then the patient was still in the back of the car. And uh, and that was that, really. Um, it took a while to sort of... In fact, in fact, it's a very strange feeling at that time. I didn't really feel scared. I didn't really feel any anxiety. I just felt that I wanted to um, help the, the porter who was severely injured and was screaming. People came out and they pulled him in and I ended up operating on him and uh, his shoulder was it was okay. He had some soft tissue injuries and no major bony injuries. And he was, he was okay. But it was a, it was a very peculiar moment. And that night when I went to bed, I was, again, totally euphoric. I'd never felt so alive. And it's, I think it's being so close to death and so almost touching you know it's not touching the void that 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 book the 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 mountaineers type book is touching the void where where you know you could have fallen down this enormous crevasse and never been seen again but to then have got out of it and and um, and being able then to um, survive it I almost had a total it seems very odd at the time but I can relive it so easily It was like a total out of body experience. And it was that, that more and more and more.
0: I also think what you went through is so important. uh, And some of these more outrageous experiences that you share are important. So if you agree, I think we should share some of the more astonishing events that you talk about in War Doctor. And just for our listeners, uh, this hardly scratches the surface. Uh, and, and to that end, I would highly recommend our listeners, if you can't tell already, I enjoyed the book, that they pick up the book and get the get the whole story. But do you mentioned your first trip to Sarajevo. I was wondering if you might be able to tell us a little bit about one of the instances in the book where you talk about being in the OR uh, with a patient with, I believe it was an IVC injury, and the hospital's bombed and the power goes out.
1: Uh, can you tell us yeah. more about what happened? Yeah sure i mean at the time in in january february march 2014 in um, sarajevo it was very very cold the it was really cold you know minus 10 we're talking about and of course we know from trauma surgery now that you need to have the operating theatre as hot as you possibly can the surgeons need to be sweating because you can't get into the trauma triad of death of hypothermia, coagulopathy and acidosis because then your patients have lost it once you get into that trauma triad of death. But unfortunately, we had patients that would come in in the middle of the night and, you know, it was very, very cold. And a lot of patients didn't make it simply because of it. it was just so cold. Um and there were often very difficult decisions to make really whether you operate or don't operate and one of the times i remember very 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 uh, um distinctly there was a boy who was probably in his teens uh, early middle teens was brought in um with a massive fragmentation injury to his abdomen and uh, he came into the or he came into the emergency room and i had a look at him and the anaesthetist was there and sort of looked at him. He's very pale. Uh, he lost a lot of blood and we didn't have that much blood with us. And it's two o'clock in the morning. It was freezing. And I had a big jumper on and I used to operate with a massive jumpers and things like that because it was just so cold. And uh, I looked at him and I looked at the boy and I looked at the anaesthetist and I looked at the scrub nurse. We'd have to call her, but I said to the anaesthetist, well, you know, we probably should do something. And uh, I, I took off the blanket underneath it. You could see there's there was this big shrapnel, big fragmentation in the abdomen. So he sort of looked at me and thought, oh, no, here we go again. And I said, well, we're quiet. You know, There's not much going on, so we'll take him to theatre. And so we took him to theatre. We, we didn't – you know, it probably was, I don't know whether a right or wrong thing to do, but the theatre was cold. I remember the steam coming out of my mask as I was washing my hands in freezing cold water. Putting this gown on and gloves, and then going to the patient and prepping him up, and and then the anesthetist um, ventilating, uh, uh, and I did the um, the laparotomy incision, and as I was trying to look inside, there was a often um, the lights would go out, and a man with a wheelbarrow would come with a big with about six or seven batteries in the wheelbarrow and hold up the a big lamp, and so to allow you to operate. The lamp wasn't very good, but it allowed you to do see something and uh anyway so i we got the patient i was opening and i, I pulled i looked at the fragments and it was going into the inferior vena cava and there was a lot of retroperitoneal blood it was all a big blue blob really and i thought well gosh if i if i start opening that now we're we're going to be in deep trouble really and um, but I realized i didn 't have that long to go because it was cold, it was freezing, so what I needed to do probably was just to ligate the inferior vena cava, and that was my plan really um, so, as I started to just mobilize the top of the inferior vena cava through all this mush of blood a uh, blood clot, um, suddenly there was this enormous bang, and it was like the, the the floor of the hospital like an earthquake, really, the floor of the hospital uh, on my operating theater just moved. And I sort of juggered forward and the lights went out. And um, I thought, mm, okay, OK, so so I waited. and I, I waited for a few more minutes and another few more minutes. And I was expecting a man with a, a the torch to come with the back car batteries, but he didn't come. And I then waited and waited. And it was pitch black because our, our operating theater was underneath the ground. Uh, so you couldn't see anything. It was really it was as black as black could be. And um, I looked around, I shouted for the anaesthetist, you know, and I, I could feel his the pulse on the aorta, which was reducing. The pulse pressure was significantly getting less. And, and then there was no pulse pressure. And so I thought, well, so he'd, he'd obviously passed away. And, and, and I could feel my hands getting colder by this time because everything was getting cold. And uh, I must have been there for about 20 minutes or even longer than that. And suddenly there was this jug 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 of the generators came back on, and uh, I, I as the lights flickered on in the operating theater i was the the only person in there. The anaesthetist had left the um, scrub nurse had left the man with the car battery never came, and I was left looking at this boy uh, who had obviously died with the uh, the ventilator had stopped working, of course, and I just felt, oh, my goodness me, you know here I am in this cold operating theatre with this poor boy that's just dying in front of me. You know, where where is everybody? And um I'm gonna cough now I'm right? afraid. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. And uh I then um just stood back, took my gloves off and um just walked down the corridor and there was the surgical operating team, the, the nieces and everybody else just huddled under a corner with some sandbags around. And um, I didn't know what to say to them. I didn't know. Well, why did you leave me there? Why didn't you tell me to come? Why didn't you help me? Why didn't wh- what's going on? And it just suddenly dawned on me, really, that in these places that you really just just have to look after yourself. It doesn't matter, you know, what's around you. Your your instinct to save your own life is um, is enormous. Um, and. Would I have left that boy there standing up? I still don't know to this day, really, whether I would have just stood there with him. Uh, um, and that, of course, then happened to me many, many years later. The same sort of thing happened. Uh, but at the time, I just felt that I needed to really, you know, it, these emotions that I have of these emotions of, you know, why did you leave me? Why why, why did you leave me? I uh, had to go and I had to really toughen up and I had to be as tough as they were in a very difficult war, war environment.
0: Right, and you write about this. Um, uh, you say it was like an initiation. Uh, I felt for the first time like a tiny cog in the vast machinery of war. My idealism was challenged and shaken. I was hardened by it. And I better understood the intense pressure my colleagues had been under for so much longer than I had had to endure.
1: And you mentioned... Yeah, exactly, because I mean... Mm. Sorry, go ahead. Look, uh no no exactly because I mean they're they're there for a very long time. I'm only there for six weeks, three months um they're there for years on end so so you have to toughen up and be like them and
0: and I believe the you said this this has happened again, and I believe what you're referring to may be, uh one of the stories from Gaza in the book is that correct where you were in a hospital with a young girl in the operating room working again on a blast injury. And you had some intelligence yeah, that, came right. in that said you were going to be shelled and you had to make a decision that the hospital itself, which was being targeted, it sounds, was going to be directly attacked and, and you had to make a decision.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, and that was, you know, gosh, um, 20 years later. And it was um, a time it was 2014 and it was the um, uh, again, another Gaza-Israeli war and um th- this was um something else i mean it was not to go into the politics of gaza which is uh, i'm sure a lot of your listeners would be have their own views about uh everything about gaza but i certainly don't want to, to get into the politics but um at the time you know i'd been through 20 odd years of of seeing war and i i had been hardened to it and i'd seen some dreadful things in my time and you know, lived through them and took them home with me, and and, and so on. And um, it was interesting that there there was in Gaza at that time. I felt I felt like it was the apocalypse. I really, really felt like it was the apocalypse. I'd never been in such, in all those years, I'd never been in a situation whereby in such a small area, because Gaza is only twenty two miles long by seven miles wide, and Gaza City is even smaller than that. And uh, in such a high-populated area, with really a significant amount of uh, of both outgoing and incoming um, uh, weaponry, uh, and uh, to, to be in that situation uh, was something—a real um, different environment altogether from 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 being in the occasional you know thud thud thud. Here it was just the walls were shaking, everything was shaking. And I remember being in the in one of the bomb shelters one night, uh, the whole of the International Committee of the Red Cross team were there, and the bomb shelter was shaking, there was dust coming from the walls. And in the morning, we went to see what was going on in the hospital, and there was lots and lots and lots of casualties, mass casualties. And I, I was doing a lot of paediatric surgery at that time, and I had the paediatric surgical theatre to myself. And one of the children, um, I I, walked, I looked around and saw there was a child on the on the gurney. So I uh, I said to who who's using this operating theatre? Um, and the surgeon said, "Be my guest, it's yours." So I took the little girl in with me with one of the um, uh, ICRC uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, an anaesthetist with me, and and we also had one of the uh, Palestinian a uh, scrub, scrub team as well. And she had m- multiple injuries and she was dying. And she she had a significant injury to her abdomen. She had a big uh, uh, fragmentation wound to her abdomen. She had an evisceration of a small bowel which was hanging out. Uh, she'd had a fragment going through her left uh, axillary artery which was thrombose. She needed a lot of work doing to her. And she, she was really sick. Uh, and she, her blood pressure was 60 systolic and whatever. So we resuscitated her for a short while and got her up to a level whereby it was we had some blood available uh, and we could operate. So I prepped up the patient and the seven-year-old was on the operating table looking extremely pitiful. And um, so as I was just about to, we just draped her and I said to Mauro, who was the uh, anaesthetist at the time, I said to Mauro, um, well, I'm going to start in a second. And all of a sudden, somebody ran into the operating theatre. And said, uh, David, David, you've got to go because the the hospital's going to be bombed in five minutes and you've just got to leave, just leave. And of course, um, at that time, I'd done what, 20 odd years of war surgery. I was sick to death of watching people being bullied almost by um, the perpetrators of war. I was just got to the stage where I probably had had enough, really, of, of what I was doing. and. Um, not burnout, I would say, but close to it, really. And I just felt, you know, I'm sick of this. I'm I, i I'm just fed up of seeing children blown up, civilians blown up, people blown up, because the perpetrators of war don't care what happens to civilians. They don't care what happens to children and so on. And I, at the time, I didn't have, my parents had died, I didn't have a wife, I didn't have a family, I didn't have any brothers and sisters, nothing. So I thought, well, okay, well, um, I don't think I'm going to leave. I'm just going to carry on operating on this girl because I refuse to leave the operating theatre because of somebody telling me that they're going to blow me up and they're going to blow this little girl apart again. Even though she's got all these injuries, you know, she didn't want to come to war. Nothing to do with her. She's innocent. She's, She's not on anybody's side. But look what you've done to her. So I said to Maro, I said, look, Maro, you can go if you want, you know, you can leave if you want, but I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay with stay with this girl. And uh Mara said, no, David, I'll I'll stay with you. I said, are you sure? You know, because we're all going to get blown up. He said, no, no, David. And I think Maro's almost the same sort of persona as as myself. So he stayed and gave the. Uh, Anesthetic, uh and i just the the scrub team left the whole hospital left it was just me and Mara with this little girl on the on the operating table so i i get this i got the um um iodine prepped her up started the laparotomy and she had holes in her bladder small bowel spleen it was a real mess inside but you know eminently treatable uh doing the right things and we just stood there and i just looked at Maro and. Uh, every now and again looked at him because I was expecting us to be completely blown apart. Um, but we um, we just stood and we operated and no bomb dropped on the hospital and everything was fine. Um, but it was it was that sort of got to a stage, I think, in life whereby I was just so fed up of seeing, you know, um, uh, children uh, being severely wounded in crossfire or not even crossfire really because 90% of all war injuries are civilians it's the people caught up in the middle um, that I, I I just felt that I wanted to stay with and I and I was I wanted to be with her really um yeah so so um that's how it all ended really
0: I mean and I I can't imagine being faced with that decision um, uh, with, with certain death for the, the, the patient on the table, um, and near certain death or, or whatever the, the calculated risk is of staying, uh, that's, that's beyond, uh, what I can even consider.
2: Um, I just want to jump in real quick. So, so Dr. Nott, you know, I hear you tell some of these stories and, and I think a lot of people can relate with the, um, the wanting to have an adventure side of things, you know, the the romanticism of, of of the whole situation. But I think what makes you different than most people is after they have enough of these um, stories like you're telling, at some point they're going to say, "That's enough. I, I I can't do it anymore." But you've kept going for 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 many years. What what keeps you? What keeps you going back, and how do you how do you resist from getting discouraged after you have a, enough of these types of experiences?
1: I think it all relates to the fact that um, you you do do you you do do good when you're out there, and the people that you see and the people that you help are helpless and. You get to a stage whereby, also as the years tick by, you get more experienced and more experienced, and you become a, a different person to what you were 20 years before that. And you have such a vast amount of surgical experience and also uh, human experience and also life experience that it's something that you become extremely savvy. You you know you can you you know that the skills that you have. Uh, Have taken a very very long time to develop, and um, it's 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 keeping knowing that you've got those skills and knowing that you've been so savvy to have have uh, come in and come out of various war zones. Uh, I mean, some of the places you described uh, originally, you know, are are countries, but I've been into those countries three or four times at each country, um, and you develop the you see the people that you've operated with six months or a year before and you come back and you operate with them again. And you develop this uh, enormous um, link really with, and friendship with people in war zones that, that you really want to go back and see them again. You, you want to maintain friendship with them. And it's, of course, it's easier now with, with the Internet and, and digital uh, technology um, but at that time, I just wanted to go back and see them. I wanted to go back and, and rekindle friendships which I had developed. And not only that, can can use the skills that I had every time I went to a war zone, I learned something new. I learned a new operation, or I, I learned a new way of doing something, or I learned a new technique that I wanted to show. And and of course, all the techniques that you, you learn uh, are things that you know, you could uh, learn from a book. But in fact, you can't really, because you have to have the experience of being in a mass casualty, knowing how to triage people. It's okay reading about it, but actually having the experience of how to do it, uh, and how to deal with massive postpartum hemorrhages and things without much blood, knowing the right techniques and so on, takes a really long time to learn. And I think, the reason for um, going back and going back and going back wasn't just purely for the excitement, which of course there was a huge amount of, uh, of that involved in, in going back, but it was also um, to be able to, um, to teach people how to, how to do the surgery because I would got this enormous amount of uh, knowledge by that time.
2: So how do we build that into um you know that I think it gets us to a lot of the the training and the programs that you started that that you know train uh, you know surgeons for you know expeditionary surgery you know, As you mentioned earlier in the western uh, world where we get more and more specialized um you know like you like you um in my civilian or in my everyday practice I do a lot of minimally invasive Um, you know, types of surgeries. And then occasionally we'll find myself in a resource constrained environment and seeing some of the most devastating injuries that uh, you could could imagine. How do you how do we build that into uh, into training? It's hard to it's hard to train for for these type of experiences. But how can we better build that into our our surgical training uh, back home?
1: Well, it's very difficult, and in fact, it's it's much more it's even more difficult now to um, be allowed to leave you know a hospital for six weeks or two months or three months. It's almost unheard of, and I think the humanitarian aspect of surgery has has really taken a huge knock because of the lack of um, insight, really, from politicians, from people involved in uh, international development, and so on, um, to be able to have young surgeons that can have the sort of career that I had um, and be allowed to go and um, do these uh, missions. Because the big problem is, of course, is that, you know, well, first of all, it is dangerous. There's no doubt about it. And even if you go, you know, going to the Yemen or whatever, uh, going up to the north of the Yemen, there was a significant uh, amount of uh, danger involved, you you know, kidnapping and, and things like that. And it it certainly puts a lot of people off um doing this sort of work. Um but once you're there, it's not as bad as what as what you read as about um the the, the sort of danger. But because the experience that you get is phenomenal. But how do you get how do you get that across to people? Well, again, the, the issue of the fact as well is that I think that doctors, surgeons, should be allowed to go off on international missions. And not only that, their their places of work should be kept open to them. And not only that, they should be paid by their hospital or paid by the government to do humanitarian missions. Because if you go uh, three months um, and work for an aid agency, often you do it really with unpaid leave. You don't get paid. Um, properly you don't have money for your mortgage you don't have money to support your family etc and of of course it's a it really is a I think very difficult for young surgeons who have families to leave their families and go if you don't have a supportive family Um, but I think you know short periods a month you know six weeks maximum should be supported by um, governments now h- how do you how do you get those people trained up to do that well I I, I really rattled my brains about this and I, I used to run a course called definitive surgical trauma skills course at the Royal College of Surgeons and you know that was a two-day course on uh, on how to manage uh, bleeding by doing you know all the various techniques that you need to know to stop major hemorrhage but I wanted something more than that I wanted to train surgeons from a humanitarian point of view that all you really need to see is about fifty operations in humanitarian surgery. and it, of course, it's decision making rather you know rather than doing the surgery that's sometimes the ultimate thing to do. And you need to have uh, so I, I decided I'd try and um, run a course, uh, and it's called Surgical Training for the Austere Environment. And we have had quite a few American people come over to the UK to go on this course. Uh, people from Baltimore and, and Shock uh, Hospital, um, if I can say that right, um, have have come over. Um, we've had people from all over the world coming on the course. Uh, and basically what it does, it teaches you, um, we, we, take a, we, we take a humanitarian problem in an austere environment where you haven't got much blood and you haven't got much equipment to deal with uh, the serious injuries. And we start really from top to bottom. And we go through neurosurgery, facial maxillary surgery, cardio, thoracic, what's necessary, what, what you can and what you can't do, abdominal surgery, orthopedics, plastics, pediatrics, obstetrics, and we teach over five days, which is a very intensive course from eight o'clock in the morning till six at night, um, all the operations that I think is the most important operations for a humanitarian surgeon to be able to do, um, and. Once they've done that course, then we've linked in with MSF and International Committee, the Red Cross, and those people now, the, the, the first surgeons that ever want to go on a mission, they come on this course and they get trained almost and we give them loads of material and videos to go with uh, and so on to keep in their back pocket on their phone so that they can reference um, how to do these procedures. It's a cadaver course and I know that many of us have done the course works it's not like the real life but it's as close as you can get and um so this course was called surgical training for the austere environment it's on the website uh, but also i i wanted to be able to throw this course open to people from all over the world really and of course you, you know the the guys that have are in very difficult environments have no money they've got can't afford even to leave their hospital or go anywhere so we offer scholarships, and so with my wife, uh, Ellie, we, we uh, started this foundation, which has got my name on it, the David Knott Foundation, uh, whereby we we give scholarships to uh, 14, 16 surgeons uh, twice a year. Uh, they apply for a scholarship, and uh, from anywhere in the world, uh, if we feel that they're in a very difficult environment, have got, haven't got any money, and we will pay for them to come uh, pay with their flights give them accommodation give them food and lodging and pay for them to come on the course and then send them back to uh, wherever they are with a whole load of knowledge which we hope uh, is is useful to them um and so so we started that but then there was another issue as well is that a lot of people didn't want to leave their hospitals or in a war zones that couldn't come across to the UK so we developed with the foundation another course called Hostile Environment Surgical Training, whereby we have, a, we have lots and lots and lots of models, uh, which is everything to do with every part of the course. So the plastics, uh, we have orthopedic external fixators, we have everything that goes you know, sort of um, uh, wires for fascia maxillary. We have a body which we've developed, uh, which is a six foot mannequin. Uh, which has every single operation on him that you need to know how to do. So we, we can do craniotomies on him, and the craniotomies are done under without CT. So it's a matter of making the right decision on how to do exploratory thor- exploratory burr holes, how to take a craniotomy, how to do do um, a simple penetrating head wound, how to debride that, and and all the injuries that you have for um, everything else is done on this body. So we can open his chest, we can rotate his lungs, we can open the abdomen, we can do various bits to his uh, abdomen and has every plastic surgical procedure on it as well. So you've got things like um, uh, medial gastrocnemius flaps, soleil flaps, uh, um, sural flaps, we have pec major and deltoid pectoral flaps. All these flaps are done on the same patient. because they're not difficult, these operations. It's just a matter of knowing where to make the incision and what indications are necessary for it. So I think at the end of the day, we're up against it really as regards training surgeons for going out to um, abroad. We really have to change our way of thinking about the world. Um, and of course, coronavirus is gonna have a different effect on us really, I suppose, in the future. But, but what, what we really need to do from a surgical aspect is to think ahead and think how are we going to be more global in our lives? How are we going to help people around the world? And, you know, I think this pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, does show that it's all global. And, we, you know, we're all becoming a little bit insular in our own countries. That I think the UK have significantly become insular and there's only one or two surgeons from the UK that actually go abroad or do anything abroad because we we have lost the the idea that the world is is global it's it's not just our own countries and i think we somehow need to get some surgical leadership really or political leadership to realize that you know we have a huge amount of experience and 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 willingness from every surgeon and every every doctor in the world to want to go out because that's the reason why he went into it in the first place to go and help people. But we need some sort of proper training and we need some proper remuneration and we need some proper people to understand that this is a good thing to do and not a crazy thing to do.
0: Sure. And it sounds like that, that this transition almost, or at least uh, in the book you describe it as a transition to recognizing the importance of, of education and of educating the, um, in-country surgeons that you worked with uh, beyond surgeons too. And I found that to be one of the most encouraging and exciting parts of the book too, was, was you coming back, starting the David Knott foundation of which the uh, David is a website. It'll be on the show notes. Um, just so impressive the work you're doing with the foundation and, and, and recognizing how much bigger of an impact that you can make by, by training those surgeons when you're there uh, and by, Creating something like you just described. Now, global, you know, the quote-unquote global surgery is is a um, hot topic right now. At least in the United States, it is, and um, and how surgery fits into global health initiatives. And many surgeons, including a, a bunch of the people listening to this podcast, are definitely interested uh, in experiences uh, internationally. But this is a, a hard to define term. What it actually means, and the conduct how you conduct a global surgery type initiative can be done wrong there's there's right ways to do it wrong ways to do it there's sustainable ways impact more impactful ways you yourself suggested remuneration time off etc that doesn't exist right now so how does one go about being useful on the international stage and doing this the right way uh, in our current environment
1: well i think it's a really good question patrick i think the the I tell you what, what. the way that I have looked at it really is that going out to so many places and and um, being with the people that you're operating with and making friends with them and keeping in contact with them and then almost developing a sort of family. And it's a family. I know it sounds strange to say, but it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a trust it's a a trust family because surgeons need to trust each other. And we all know surgeons that we don't want to ever operate upon us. Um, But, you know, what we need to do is to to develop this sort of trust amongst surgeons that surgeons are able to talk. They're able to tell, you know, another surgeon, you know, I've got this real problem and, and so on. And it's actually more difficult sometimes in war zones for people to do that. There's a lot of bravado going around and so on. So, but the way that I've sort of looked at it was was this creating the foundation was such that we brought people from all over the world into our, our training establishment and it's only it's only in london because that's where i work it could have been anywhere in the world but that's where i work and then to take out an, a, a training establishment um, abroad and then to meet lots and lots of other surgeons and to train them and so on and at the end of the day, sometimes we have discussions about various clinical cases that they have. Often if we're working with an aid agency like MSF or something, then we'll be be operating with those surgeons at night time and things like that. But then I think the beauty of all this is, is that we now have um, developed webinars as well, whereby all the surgeons that we have met around the world and all the surgeons that uh, We've we, we worked in 60 countries now, that, um, or surgeons from 60 countries I should say, and uh, have been with us. So we have now have an enormous feel uh, uh, around the world of, um, of of where the surgeons are, and, and we open up um, webinars every week, On a, and you're welcome, any of you are welcome to join the webinars uh, what you'll see is, is um, austere environment surgery. You'll see surgery where a, a surgeon in the Yemen has had a gunshot wound and he produced a, uh, this is a, This is yesterday, we had a webinar yesterday, and uh, you know, a surgeon will produce a gunshot wound to the tibia, uh, which has been three weeks old, and the tibia is obviously dead, but the patient's got an external fixator on and he wants to know whether he can put a flap on it. And the answer is no, because the tibia is dead. And um, it's a matter of being you know te- getting that those surgeons that really want help and advice to open up to us rather than uh, not to and so we we run these webinars every every a clinical webinar every week and you'll see surgeons from all over the world discussing their cases it's not long it only goes on for 60 minutes um, but we don't want to overburden people we just want to choose various uh, cases that they want to discuss and so it's, it's then developing this sort of global feel uh, of surgeons uh, around the world. Um, and that's the way that we have done it on an on a electronic, over the internet you know, webinar, Zoom, however you want to call it system. Um, but it certainly is one way of, um, of really uh, putting a, an umbrella over everybody around the world to try and get them to talk about their cases. And what we do as well is that you know um I don't feel that i I want to be the main person. I'll bring in um yesterday, for example, we had a plastic surgeon, we had an obstetrician, we had a pediatric surgeon. We had people that are in this country um in the u k giving advice to somebody in the Congo uh, about his uh, shoulder dystocia patient, which he lost because he didn't quite know what to do, and it was a discussion about. You know, with a with a top rated obstetrician, who then we then have to you know bring down to austere environment levels because they talk about all all you know interesting things which they can't do in the austere environment. But at least that's a that um, surgeon who's a general surgeon or maybe a clinical assistant without much sur- surgical knowledge is actually talking to an obstetrician. So it's it's developing a family um, around the world, and I think that that is the way that I feel is the right thing to do and I think we know it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and and our foundation uh, it stretches out now we have lots of close links with different uh, um, NGOs we have lots of very strong links with MSF and International Red Cross we have Syria we have uh, hands-on for Syria we have um, lots of different NGOs Palestinian Children's Refugee Fund join us there's lots and lots of uh, of um NGOs that are are now putting their surgeons in touch with us, so that they can have this sort of training. And I think then it's a matter of, you know, it, if it if for me this works, there are obviously very other lots of different ways that you know people can develop their ways of teaching other surgeons. And it'd be brilliant if uh, you know lots of people had different views about how to how to do it. But this is the way that we do it. And you know, we would be very happy to um, have as many people from the states on board with us, just to see what we do, and for you to go off and do your own thing, however you you feel.
0: What a it sounds like an amazing program, and and as much as the folks um, calling in from abroad learn, I'm sure all the listeners and and people participating learn equally as much or more um, about. Uh, about new issues they're not aware of, or how to communicate and manage these issues in in an austere environment. Uh, so, Dr. Well, Nan, in, in respect of your time, I I am deeply saddened that I I have so many more questions for you, and so much uh, there's so much amazing things you've done. You are truly inspiring. I cannot uh, encourage our listeners enough to pick up your book to read. There's just a lot. There's a, so many more layers of what. Um, beyond what we've had, we've had the time to discuss in this short, short interview. Uh, that I just would really love to have more people uh, uh, read about and think about, and, and hopefully uh, become involved. And so, we, again, we will have a link to your to your book in our in our show notes, as well as your foundation. And, and uh, I would love to be able to get a specific link to these weekly uh, webinars as well. Um, so, again, Dr. Knott, uh, we thank you so so much for making the time. Uh, and, uh, we're thrilled to have had you on, on behind the knife.
1: Thank you very much, Patrick. It's been an honor. Thank you.
0: Until next time dominate the day.